Greetings, Zurich Mennonite Church. For those who don't know me, I'm Brent Kipfer, pastor of Mapleview Mennonite Church near Wellesley. It is such a joy to join you today. I so much wish I could be with you face to face, but it, it's such an honor to be able to share with you. Our two congregations have shared a special bond through the years. So many friendships and, and even family connections. And then a few years ago, we began that journey, which led us to joining the Mennonite Brethren together last February. So it's wonderful to connect with you today and a real privilege to have your pastor, Ryan Yancey, share with us at Mapleview. Imagine that God had invited you to write a script for this year. You have a blank calendar. What would you compose for 2021? What goals would you achieve? Who would you spend time with? What, what emotions would you include? How would you plan the weather? Would you tackle a project or would you do some traveling? What would you avoid? If you could script these next months, would they include any sickness or injury? Maybe a bit of unexpected disaster. COVID. W would you schedule in some good frustrating moments? Some sadness, losses, conflict, stress, or inconvenience? I'd skip that stuff. <laughs> what about you? Life is so often not how we would script it. And yet God invites us into a glorious story. Not one we would write, but better. Far better. The thing is, it, it often feels unnatural. My impulses do not easily, easily align with his. My desires, my priorities, e even how I look at myself in the world, my, my perception, all of this needs to be converted if I am going to function in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us into an ongoing, lifelong repentance, a continual surrender of ourselves to him that we might share in his suffering and in his glory, and by a miracle of his Holy Spirit, be changed. A few weeks ago, here at Mapleview, I began a sermon series on the book of James, and I'm finding his words just so very relevant for our time. In chapter 1, verse 2, he urges us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, what trials might James have in mind? There's persecution, poverty, sickness, loneliness, loss of a loved one. There's disappointment, unemployment. Trials include adversity, suffering, and hardship of all sorts. Consider these things pure joy, James says. Really? Don't we want to avoid all this stuff with, with every fiber of our being? You may be going through an ordeal right now, just trying to make it through. Are we really to welcome pain or rejoice when things go wrong? What James says here runs so counter to our instincts and our, our natural wants. We just instinctively rebel. 
surely God wants me to be happy. How could he ask me not just to, to embrace my trials, but, but to rejoice in them? Now, if James had written this from a, a comfortable house with every convenience at his fingertips, it might be easy to dismiss. What does he know about the real world? Well, Christians in Jerusalem were marginalized. They were mocked, sometimes martyred. In 62 AD, James himself was put to death for his faith in Jesus. The city often had food shortages in those years due to famine in Egypt. Life wasn't easy for anybody. When, when James writes this world, word trial, he's, he's not out of touch. He knows suffering. He, he's not asking us to deny reality either, to call something good when, when it's not. But the Holy Spirit gave him a fresh new perspective, a whole new perspective. There, there are certain spiritual realities that we cannot grasp with our natural minds. We need the Spirit of God to teach us. Albert Shee ha had laser surgery to correct his sight, his eyesight, but it didn't go as well as he had hoped. He could see better, but, but his vision was still fuzzy. Then he went to a conference for staff at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. In worship, he squinted to, to see the, the words of a song that projected on, on a far wall. The song was called God of Justice. To get together, they sang, Live to feed the hungry, stand beside the broken. We must go, stepping forward. Keep us from just singing. Move us into action. We must go. So Albert says, I close my eyes as we repeated the chorus, praying that the Lord would direct me. How might I move into action? The song cycled back to, to an earlier verse, he says, and I opened my watering eyes. The lyrics on the screen shimmered slightly, then, then came crisply into focus. I could see clearly. Had God just healed me? I blinked several times and my, my vision wavered back and forth. Clear, blurry, clear, blurry. Then I realized, while singing, I'd been tearing up, moved by God's call. And the thin layer of water on my eyeballs functioned like a contact lens. The tears made my vision clearer. He says, I suspect I will never see as clearly as I do when I have tears in my eyes. Now that is so much like spiritual vision. We can only see rightly as our hearts beat in sync with God. As, as, as we take in information around us, as we, as we hear news or interpret conversations, we need the Holy Spirit to enable us to perceive clearly. James here calls us to a radical humility before God. How do we see trials? James urges us to consider them pure joy. Why? How? How many believers begin their life of faith with passion? It's excited to enter the kingdom realities of Jesus Christ only to crash and burn when things get tough. We all have expectations, don't we? 
And when they're not met, we get disappointed, even, even disillusioned. We make judgments, even judgments about God. And so James wants us to see the big picture, to see our experience in light of a greater reality so that we're equipped for the long haul. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, if you could glide through life without any trouble, would you ever exercise faith? No. No. You could have great theology, had knowledge of God, but, but you'd never need to flex your faith muscles. Even if you believed your faith was strong, it would, in reality, be withering. Because faith only thrives when it's tested. How do you react to hardship, to, to disappointment, to pain? Do you throw in the towel? Do, do you sink into despair or, or into self-pity? Do you get bitter? Or do you lean into Jesus? The biblical word for testing comes from the process of refining silver or gold. Douglas Moo, a Bible scholar, points out that our faith needs to be heated in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. And so the purpose of our faith being tested, it, it's not to see whether we have any, but, but it's to purify and strengthen the faith that's already there. James explains, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Is that your aim? To be mature and complete in Christ Jesus. How high does that rank for you as a motivation and a goal? The, the Greek word perseverance conveys the idea of remaining under a load, carrying it successfully over a long time. Our muscles only become strong when they face resistance. The, sa the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. It's when we stick with him over the long haul that, that God shapes us into a certain type of person, mature and complete. I'm not a fan of Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, but, but he once made a profound statement about perseverance. He said, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. A long obedience in the same direction. Now, you know, in, in our impatient society, so many people struggle to find purpose in life, don't they? What about you? What difference it makes to stick to your commitments, to doggedly pursue that long obedience in the same direction? Now, now with, with almost any goal you set, whether whether it's to get in shape or learn a new job skill or, or become a better hockey player, whatever it is, there can be tremendous satisfaction in pursuing it wholeheartedly, following it through to the end, finishing well. 
James calls us to pursue a long obedience, not just in any old direction, but, but toward the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ in communion with him, walking in intimate fellowship with Jesus. Now, it's, it's one thing to talk about trials generally. It's another to, to be stuck in a specific, stressful challenge. Because as we experience life, we, we, we don't experience trials generally. <laughs> they, always, they always have a particular shape, don't they? How can I pay my bills while looking for a job? What is the best treatment for my disease? How, how should I respond to my annoying classmate? What should I do about my depression? James knows we need help with these questions. We're, we're, we're not equipped to tackle trials on our own. Do you ever forget that? I do. I, I can sometimes assume that, that I really should know how to deal with whatever I'm facing. But that's arrogance. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Is, is that your posture before the Lord? Remember who he is. Remember the character of God, James urges us. God lo loves giving good gifts. Do you quickly, do you readily admit your need to him and humbly ask him for wisdom, confident he will answer? He, he is faithful. But when you ask, James says, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Well, it gets tricky here. It, it's really easy to, to misunderstand what James is saying on this point. Doubt's normal in the Bible, and it, it's normal in our human experience. When, when Thomas first hears the news that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he, he can't believe it. It's, it's just too incredible, too good. How does Jesus respond? Does, does he reject Thomas because of his doubt? No. No, he invites, he invites his friend to come close to touch his scars. The Psalms are packed with questions for God. In, in honest prayer, questions are normal. Wrestling with the Lord, seeking direction, begging for his help. In, in this world, we hear so many things, some true, some untrue. Maybe you read an inspirational comment about God on, on Facebook. Now, it might be biblically grounded, or maybe it's only partly true. Doubt can spur us to sort through these claims, helping us to, to test and figure out what, what do I really believe? What is trustworthy and what, what, what isn't? So, so, so James is not condemning honest questions. No, he, he's addressing something different. He's addressing a divided heart. It's a question of commitment. If, if you split your devotion to God with anything else, then you are double-minded. James actually coins this word literally double-souled. 
If I'm double-souled, I cannot expect God to answer my prayers. Just imagine an athlete with a single-minded focus to reach the Olympics. She, she trains with the best coaches, practices every spare moment, follows her diet to a T. Nothing distracts her from the goal. Then she meets someone. She falls in love. She still trains, but it's maybe less enthused about that strict schedule. She goes out to eat. Her diet just doesn't seem quite as important as it once did. She has a new priority. She's become double-minded. Now, when it comes to sports, that's probably okay, even healthy. With God, it's another matter. Blessed are those who seek him with all their heart, the psalmist says. When we ask him for wisdom or anything else, James says we should do it without any division in our soul. Confident because we trust him. Now one place we're prone, very prone to get double-minded is between God and money. That can be one of our greatest tests, whether we're rich or poor. Love for money can consume you whether you have lots of it or very little of it. So, so James says believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. The kingdom of God, of course, looks upside down in the eyes of this world. If you are poor, can you see yourself as God sees you? Exalted in his kingdom, highly valued with all the resources of heaven at your disposal? Will you trust the truth of God or the lies of the world? Then, then James addresses the other side. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they're going about their business. Does that sound like good news? In the kingdom of God, it is. If you are rich, can you identify with Christ and his people and take a low place in this world? It's so easy to evaluate your life through the lens of your bank account, whether you're doing well or struggling. This is a great test. Will you let the world squeeze you into its mold or will you live in the freedom of Jesus Christ? Can you accept how God sees you or do you let the world define and assess your value? What kind of person are you becoming? That's the question James raises here. Amid the trials you face, are you letting perseverance do its work, helping you become mature and complete? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Imagine one day kneeling before the throne of God and having that crown placed on your head and hearing those words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. On that day, our joy will not be in any of our accomplishments but it'll be in the perfect knowledge of God and his love. 
His faithfulness makes ours possible. The issue is not our strength, but whether we rely on God to make us faithful. That is the question. It's not religious performance, but trusting Him. When we fail, He is still faithful. And He will set us back into the race if we're willing. Remember the character of God. James keeps coming back to this. In verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Temptations can run wild, especially when you're under pressure. When do you most experience temptation? Most of us are especially vulnerable when we're hungry, or we're angry, or we're lonely, or we're tired. Is that your experience? Do you ever blame God when you're tempted? Maybe for putting you in a situation where you're experiencing that temptation. Remember who he is, James urges us. Remember his character. God is good. And, and James here, he describes this spiral of temptation. An evil desire wells up within us, except it doesn't look so bad. Are temptations powerful because they look ugly? No. No, no, they seem attractive. Tem temptations usually connect to needs that we feel, often legitimate needs. But where will I go with, with, with these needs I have? Where will I go with my vulnerability? Will I go to God? Will I ask brothers and sisters for help? Or, or will I try to forge my own way and dishonor God and betray my core values, my commitments? James uses the word entice, like a fish attracted to a lure or a wild animal to a trap. Where do our sinful instincts lead us? Where do they end? James says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's a deadly spiral. The Apostle Paul <laughs> says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says the wages of sin is death. There's this, it's this consistent theme throughout the Bible. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came into this world to overcome it. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not succumb. He was not only faithful in his love for us and for his whole creation, he gave himself for us on the cross. There we see his righteousness. His righteousness on display, not to condemn us, but to save us. James says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is a good Father. Again and again, James points to his extraordinary, generous goodness. How we need to remember that when we are facing trials, 
when we're facing temptations, that God is a good Father who gives only good gifts. How have you seen this in your own life? Many of his gifts to us flow through this, this good creation. Broken as it is, God, God blesses us. Things like health with family, even satisfying work, beauty around us. And we, we praise him for these things, even when we know that they're temporary. Other gifts flow uniquely through Jesus Christ as we receive him in faith. As, as gifts of salvation, they're everlasting. Can you rejoice that Jesus died for your sins? That you are forgiven, that your slate has been wiped clean through his shed blood, that you've been adopted into his family, that you've become an heir of eternal life, a citizen of his kingdom. Can you rejoice in the gift of the Holy Spirit? Does gratitude well up from within you when you think about God, the Father of the heavenly lights, who gives every good and perfect gift? You know, it's so dangerous to look at our trials or temptations in isolation. Because under pressure, our spiritual vision easily becomes narrow. We focus on our pain or, or on the power of the temptation. We, and we forget the riches that God makes available to us. Most importantly, God himself, the true treasure. One day, the whole creation will be set free. Sin and suffering will be ancient history. There'll be no more COVID or cancer. No disasters of any kind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foretaste of that. James says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Jesus invites us to be born again by surrendering to him, confessing our sins, and receiving his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead so that we're no longer our own, but his. God is gathering a wonderful harvest, spiritual fruit, people redeemed by Jesus. By calling us a kind of first fruits, James reminds us that, that by faith in Christ, we are part of this great ingathering. And so are your eyes fixed on God, on our Lord Jesus Christ, and on that harvest? What kind of people are we becoming? Are we letting him make us mature and complete through the trials we face? Are you ready to press in toward Jesus through trials, through testing, looking forward to that glorious celebration? Can you consider it pure joy? Let's pray. Father, thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Lord, thank you that you know us. You know us inside and out. You know how, you know the, the particular pressures that we're all experiencing. The challenges even unique to this season.
Lord, thank you that you don't stand far off when we're suffering, but that you do come alongside us by your Holy Spirit. Or just as, just as the Lord Jesus came and stood with us so many years ago, becoming fully human, going to the cross. Lord, we thank you that you are with us and not against us. Whatever we're facing. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see, to see ourselves, to see our circumstances as, as you see us. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would do your good work in us, that you would let perseverance finish its work in us that we might be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by the harvest in our lives. Lord, help us fix our eyes on you that we might truly live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.